Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critically Reclaimed, the the, the podcast uh, you're listening to. My name is William (laughs) Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. And uh, once again, as we so often do on this Critically Reclaimed uh, podcast... We're taking a trip back to the 90s. Uh, briefly lay out the premise of the show. Okay. Uh, there is uh, there is a whole slew of things to choose from when it comes to all of the streaming services. Over the last year and a half during the pandemic, more people have been spending time inside with their streaming services, and we decided to explore a bit. Yeah, and, and of course, the, the stuff that's making all the headlines are the new movies, mm. the new TV shows, the big, you know, the, the, the big... Uh, with, with, with the ones that are uh, trending yeah, they, on your various social media services. If it's an older film, it's a film that is really well-liked already and mm-hmm. has a big following already. It's yeah. Like, but the thing well, is... Look, that, the Lord of the Rings movies are coming to blank. It's like, well, we know that. We've yeah. seen them. Uh, but these streaming services have these big, giant back catalogs that sometimes aren't explored. And this gives us an opportunity to not only share some of those older films with you, but also to shore up some holes in our own film education. Whitney Seibold and I have been film critics, professional film critics, like fully full-time film critics for about 10 years now. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, we're only human and we haven't seen every single thing. So every single film that we cover on Critically Reclaimed is a movie that at least one of us has either never seen or hasn't seen in so very long that we might as well have never seen it. Right. And uh, what we do is we every week we pick a streaming service, we pick a particular uh, category, maybe it's a genre, maybe it's a decade, uh, and uh, we pick four films, two films each. We put them on our Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. There's a poll. Only our patrons get to vote for that poll, and they get to decide what we're going to review every single week. And this week... We decided to head on over to Disney Plus and look at some, uh, I believe it was the topic was live action films from the 90s. Yeah. Uh, Disney Plus, as we've, we had a whole podcast devoted to uh, films that weren't on Disney Plus. And uh, it's frustrating because Disney Plus uh, was created specifically to display this gigantic catalog of films that Disney had recently acquired. They bought Fox. Yeah. All of a sudden they have thousands and thousands of movies and then they're going to launch their streaming service and you would think as a a film aficionado and a fan of archiving and such things that uh, they would put everything yeah thousands of movies all at once no they released it with what it was 250 titles it was a few hundred and to be fair i will i will will say this for disney uh, this is only in america people's access to disney's catalog varies from country to country but speaking in america Disney has the Disney Plus streaming service, which launched a couple of years ago, and but they also, when they purchased Fox, they acquired Hulu. That's right. So they kind of have two. So the idea, I was my understanding, was like all of like the sort of family friendly stuff would be on Disney Plus. Mm. That's their brand. It's going to be branded with Disney, and everything else would go to Hulu. Right. Which actually makes perfectly fine sense to me. You know, like what are we really? What does Die Hard really belong on Disney Plus? 
feels a little harsh, well, doesn't it? Well, like why, Disney is the name of the company. You know, yeah. I'm not concerned with their brand. I don't they care. Are. I just I know they are. I don't care. I, <laughs> I appreciate that. I'm just trying to explain how this works. But uh, but regardless, yeah, there's still these like gigantic holes mm. in uh, their catalog that have either. Uh, that, that have not shown up on these streaming services, either because Disney doesn't give a shit, Disney doesn't remember it, maybe they're in really bad shape and need to get cleaned up and they haven't gotten around to it because there's not a lot of demand. There's a million different reasons. Mm. Sometimes they're just ashamed of it. <laughs> Sometimes they just put out some <laughs> racist crap. And that's totally a thing we've discovered on our podcast. One of our you can, dinosaurs is missing. One of our dinosaurs yeah. is missing is not on Disney Plus for very good yeah. reasons. Holy shit, that movie. Cute concept. Yes. Racist execution. Really racist execution. So... Mm. Uh, however, there's still a lot of stuff on Disney Plus. We can't deny it, and there's plenty of stuff that one or both of us hasn't seen. And uh, the winner of our poll was a movie that I had seen. Whitney is getting his first uh, uh, true experience with it, and that is the 1993 all-star Disney adaptation of Alexandre Dumas' The Three Musketeers. Walt Disney Pictures presents the story of the greatest heroes who ever lived. Ah! Long live the Musketeers! It was a time when danger was irresistible. Did I miss anyone? King's life is in danger. We have work to do. 1,000 gold pieces on each of their heads, dead or alive. I prefer... Kill him! Dead. Adventure was everywhere. I hope we're not interrupting. Kill those musketeers. Campaign? We're in the middle of a chase, Porthos. And friendship. You're right. Something red. Was the greatest weapon of all. The Three Musketeers stars Brian Adams and Rod Stewart and Sting as the Three Musketeers. Oh my god, I would have killed to have seen that version. <laughs> no, my, my knowledge of this 1993 version of Three Musketeers was the hit song that went along with it. And yeah. uh, the Three Musketeers was clearly, very clearly made to uh, piggyback on the success of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, which mm. came out just a few years before. It's actually, I want to talk about this because I, I think it's half that okay. and half Young Guns. Okay. So what happened was in the the, the late eighties, early nineties, uh, there was the, the action genre was in some interesting places, and they had decided to do a cowboy movie starring a lot of the hot young stars of mm. the era. It was, it was uh, Kiefer Sutherland, yeah. Charlie Sheen, uh, Emilio Estevez, and, uh, uh, Lou Diamond Phillips. Lou Diamond Phillips. Those are the big ones, but other people old Jeremy Mulroney, I think, was in the second one. Uh, There's a bunch, and um, the idea was everyone's hunky and cool. We're going to put them in leather and we're going to put like some like awesome, like badass soundtrack in it. And it's going to ha- be incredibly historically inaccurate, mm-hmm. like have nothing whatsoever uh, to fucking do with it. And from, it's going to uh, be fun. The, the movie is cast based. You mm-hmm. don't really need a story in there. And like, there really isn't much of one. <laughs> all you need is <laughs> just cool and cowboy glory shots of the, the hot young hunks in their cowboy yeah. outfits doing sexy things. Um, yep. I don't know if the film... I know there's a sequel, Young Guns 2, yep. and there was another one called Bad Girls, and I don't know if that's a Not spin-off a, at all. Just or? tonally similar. So, okay. Because that one had, uh, what did that have? That had Madeline Stowe uh, and, Andy uh, McDowell, Drew, yeah. and Drew Barrymore. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. They, they were the bad girls. I haven't seen that since theaters. <laughs> I have no memory of how I, that I haven't goes. seen Bad Girls or Young Guns. Okay. But, uh, oh, you I, haven't seen Young Guns ever? Uh, nope, not ever. Okay. Uh, yeah. It's yeah, fun. I mean, I, I, I was 
not interested in westerns. And yeah. so, yeah, I didn't see Young Guns. I didn't see Wyatt Earp or Tombstone or any of those. It okay. took, took me a long time to catch up to Unforgiven. Uh, but, yeah, the, those were the hot young stars at the time. The Brat Pack or mm-hmm. Brat Pack adjacent actors. Yeah. And uh, also... And, and Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves showed that these sort of sweeping romantic adventure films could make big money. And not only that, I feel like Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves is, I don't want to say underrated, because if you, whether you like it or not, and there's stuff to like about it, stuff to not like about it in equal measure, uh, that's irrelevant. I think we underestimate how significant that movie is. Oh, yeah. In yeah. terms of how influential the movie Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves is, it might not realize that if you're younger and you weren't around when it came out, you might not realize that movie was like the highest grossing film of that year. Yeah. That movie was was huge. It was a juggernaut. And it became uh, like a slumber party standard. Kids would gather together and watch it in huge numbers. Yep. Kevin Costner was this gigantic sex symbol at the time. There's a scene where he shows his butt. From what I understand, it was a butt double. It was a butt double, yeah. Yeah, Uh, But it it was another one that had a hit soundtrack from Mm. Brian Adams. Uh, the the uh, theme song to that one was just another one that was everywhere. And uh, Alan but, Rickman plays the bad guy is sort of one, another uh, notable American role for him. What I see connecting this Young Guns, and also I will say this, the other thing about Robin and Prince of Thieves is that uh, the story structure for Robin and Prince of Thieves, it's Batman Begins. Mm-hmm. You ever actually uh, watch them back to back? It's the same fucking movie. They, they pretty much ripped off the story. They just did the, yeah. the Robin Hood story with Batman. Yeah. Robin Hood Prince of Thieves opens with the asshole son of a rich guy who never really appreciated what he had mm-hmm. uh, going off uh, to uh, you know different parts of the world. He's in prison. Uh, he has learned how to fight and uh, become a great warrior. Uh, he returns back. Uh, to his home, which it turns out has been taken over by assholes, and now he's got to become a vigilante in order to fight them. A vigilante whose uh, uh, partner is a, a tech expert played by Morgan Freeman. <laughs> <laughs> they just got Morgan yeah. Freeman again. Yeah, they weren't even hiding that. Um, like, there's his the, the the girl that he loved thinks he's an asshole and doesn't trust him to be responsible, so she doesn't believe that he's actually like this heroic vigilante guy, and it's the exact same fucking thing as the Katie Holmes. It's the same fucking movie it's, it's like the the analogs are really really solidly there and yeah. uh, it, it was so successful it was referenced in all other media yeah mel brooks made a movie lampooning it mostly yeah. that Ro- like robin hood a men little bit tights. of errol flynn mostly, mostly robin uh, hood prince of Thieves. there's even a joke in robin hood men in tights the mel brooks film where um uh robin hood who's played by carrie elwes in that movie uh is sort of has appeared in front of the king and he's uh king john who's taken over the, yeah. the throne and he's King John says, why should I take you seriously? He says, like some, unlike some other Robin Hoods, I can speak with an English accent. Yeah. Which, which is a direct dig at Kevin Costner, who sounds like he's from Southern California. Yeah, I think the original idea was he couldn't, he wasn't good at the accent and they were going to dub him later. Mm. Uh, and then they decided not to bother. Yeah. So they just, so. I'm, I'm Robin Hood. Kevin Costner we're, does all of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Eddie is with, has a with, bit. It's yeah. like, where is the Maid Marion and the Sheriff of Nottingham? Yeah, uh, he plays as, as all American of Robin Hood as an American. Hmm. And I think that's also significant because what Young Guns and Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves and Three Musketeers did as well was... Americanize it. <laughs> well, I mean, Young Guns was American as well, but they basically they're trying to make everything modern and American. Hmm. You know, uh, uh Fucking Young Guns had like John Bon Jovi on the fucking soundtrack. At least the sequel <laughs> did. Uh, we had uh, uh, and and Robin Hood is now the American who comes to England in order to fix their shit. Uh, and Three Musketeers 
it, it's actually weird how every <sighs> there's this trope in movies where it's set in a country where people don't speak English, mm. but because it's an American production or British production, uh, all the characters do. And we're just supposed to have it understood that they're really speaking French yeah, or they're really speaking German. It's been and really they're just biz- translated and yeah, we're supposed to accept that they're, they're translated. It's okay. And, um, yeah. they might still have their, uh, 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 original names. Yeah. Henri. Uh, uh, yeah, you know. my name is Henri. Uh, and, yeah. and, and that's true in, in The Three Musketeers when uh, Chris O'Donnell shows up, free from UC Santa Cruz. <laughs> like, says, hey, hey, I'm what's D'Artagnan. Your, what's your name? I'm D'Artagnan. <laughs> You're Chad and you know it. <laughs> so they, uh, they're, they're, yeah. it, it, it takes place in France and yeah. they talk about the French throne, but everybody's speaking English. Everybody's, English everybody's American except for Tim Curry, who's British, but he's the bad guy. So, okay. I'm, I'm Cardinal Richelieu. Yeah. And oh, also God. a young, but then like 30 minutes into the movie or whatever, you run into a young Julie Delpy who's only in like two An actual scenes. French actress. And yeah. she's <laughs> speaking with a French accent and you're like. Okay, whoa, you just broke my mind. What accent is everyone else speaking Look, I, in? I got used to that uh, because two years before this, there a movie came out called Beauty and the Beast, which also took a place in France. Oh, yeah. And only one character, no, two, maybe two or three characters had French accents, and the rest was, were all like, just, American or British. It was just Cogsworth and Lumiere, right? Uh, Cogsworth was British. Oh, that's right, Cogsworth was British, but Lumiere, Lumiere was Lumiere, British. played by Jerry Orbach, yeah. had a French oh, accent. Jerry Orbach. It, R- it, it blew my mind when I found out that Jerry Orbach was Lumiere. <laughs> the cop from Law and Order I, was well, because Lumiere. He has, such a, he has such a particular, like, mm. presence, yeah. and he comes across as just an older American man, and to find out he actually did a pretty damn good French character in a Disney animated movie, <laughs> I never would have thought Usually, if, when they cast like know celebrities Jerry, uh, to play like animated characters, now they don't want them to hide their voice. Yeah, they want the celebrity voice. Yeah, they, which yeah, is uh, yeah. a dubious. Pro- it's not what I really uh, am fully in favor of. No. Uh, I think there's a whole spate of professional voice actors who yeah. can do that yeah. that are losing jobs to people who aren't professional voice actors or mm-hmm. are just doing it for the first time. Uh, Shrek really kicked that door open. Um, uh, well, Aladdin started. Aladdin it. started it, but. Yeah. Uh, uh, and Robin Williams didn't want it to happen, and there's this whole yeah. story about how Robin Williams objected to the way they used his uh, his name in the advertising when he didn't want them to. Yeah. Uh, anyway, we're off topic. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but so back the, to the, the Three Musketeers, we so have, uh, yeah, uh, all these Southern Californians in France, and they're mm-hmm. doing Dumas' novel. Yeah. Uh, it's directed by Stephen Herrick. Yay! Fun director! Stephen Herrick... Uh, of, critter, had, of Critters fame. He had done Critters, which is awesome. He had done uh, Bill and Bill Ted's Ted, Excellent yeah. Adventure, which is awesome. He had done Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, which became, okay. a, it became a cult classic. It's a cult classic. People like them. I like that movie a lot. I watched it a bunch of times growing up. I quote it all the time. I'm right on top of that, Rose. Hmm. Uh, he did The Mighty Ducks the, the year prior, which was a huge hit for Disney. Yeah. Huge. And he finished out the 90s like pretty solid. He did Mr. Holland's Opus, Academy Award nominated drama. He did 101 Dalmatians, which that first li- hit, that yeah. first live action one with Glenn Close, pretty good. Okay. It's actually I rewatched it recently. It holds up better than I thought. It it's not just a good Glenn Close performance. It's actually an It's okay movie. mostly a good Glenn Close performance, but it's it works. Okay. It's a fa- it's a family movie and it works. Yeah. I'm not going to complain about it. Too How does much. it compare to Cruella? 
Oh, it's better. <laughs> well, both of the other, both of the other live action Hundred One Dalmatians are better than Cruella, I think. Yeah. Uh, but um, but then after that, you know, he had a couple of semi successful movies. He did that Mark Wahlberg movie, Rockstar. Yeah, uh, he did a Holy Man, which was sort of the downturn for him. Yeah, uh, that was not a with, that was not uh, a hit. It, it was not a hit. It was yeah. Uh, it was around the time Eddie Murphy was starting to make hit movies again, and for whatever reason, Holy Man didn't yeah, work. Just didn't catch. I, on. I just never saw that one, so I can't uh, speak I, to it. I saw the preview a thousand times because it played at the movie theater where I was working. Did you ever see the Angelina Jolie movie he did, Life or something like it? I didn't see that one. Either. Okay, this movie pisses me off, and I'll tell you. I want to. I want to have the girlfriend. Is it the the distorted voice scene that, that pisses you off? No. What? No. There's a scene in the movie where uh, Angelina Jolie is giving a live broadcast, and uh, somebody in the uh, in the like tech booth is trying to sabotage her broadcast, so they distort her voice, oh. speaking to the, and she starts to sound like a chipmunk. I don't. Uh, they, that they, at all. And uh, but the weird thing is, she's on mic live on the scene and coming through the speakers, like on the TVs at home. She sounds like a chipmunk. But live on the scene, people are laughing at her voice. They would have no way of knowing. Yeah, exactly. there's, okay. there's, yeah. That's what I don't remember. What I do remember is the idea of life for something like it is that uh, Angelina Jolie, who plays an extremely platinum blonde reporter and who only cares about uh, superficial things, she cares about her career, how she looks. Uh, she is doing an on-air uh, uh, interview with a famous uh, street performer who can allegedly see the future. Mm. And so she says, okay, well, what, what, and she's got like a big like interview coming up for like a huge job and she's super excited. It's like, okay, so what's going to happen to me next week? Ha ha ha. And he's like, you're going to die. And she's like, What? <laughs> He's like, oh, yeah, you're gonna die. That's right. That's the pr- the premise. The premise is that, she's yeah, gonna she, die. And so she's now gonna she's die. gonna she's gonna change her whole life around. And her camera guy, played by uh, Ed Burns, is gonna fall in love with her when she starts living her life. And I swear to God, I didn't see that movie for years because I saw the trailer. And I'm like, I I see what they're doing here. She's gonna dye her hair, and because she changed her look. She's not going to get that job. You're going to die. That was the joke. That was the. I assumed that was the joke. All right. And it turns out no, she actually dies. Um, <laughs> oh great. Okay. She dies and comes back. You know, like she oh, dies for like bizarre. a minute. Okay. And they, you know, paddle her. You know, yeah. with the what do you call it? The shock paddles. Uh, what do you call it? The defibrillator. <laughs> defibrillator. They, they yeah. Defibrillator, and she's yeah. fine. But like, spoilers for a movie you were never going to see. You were never. If anyone in our audience. Was like, God, I was waiting for the right time to watch Life or Something Like It. I sincerely apologize. My point is this: my ending's better. Yeah, it's not a good. It's not good either way. But my, I gave it like the Preston Sturges ending, uh-huh. and they just gave it this like crappy early '90s comedy ending. It doesn't work. But anyway, anyway, Stephen Herrick, underrated filmmaker. He, when you look at his early credits, and you realize, Jesus, he made a lot of hit films. Well, uh, or cult films. Well, hits. I think. I mean, you look mm. at again. Bill and Ted Crit- was Critters uh, was a mild yeah. Critters was a, was a modest, but it was a success. Hmm. Okay, you've got uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, which was actually like delayed on the schedule for a long time because they thought no one would like it. Hmm. Runaway success. Yeah, Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, eventually now considered a success. The Mighty Ducks, gigantic smash hit at, at Three, the time. Yeah. At the time, Three Musketeers, very successful, not gigantic, but very successful. Mr. Holland's Opus, Oscar, acclaimed Oscar, film, yeah. Hundred One Dalmatians, gigantic hit. That's a great decade mm. for any filmmaker. <laughs> so here's Stephen Herrick at the height of his of his game, and he has assembled uh, the following pretty damn good cast for the time. You got to admit that like this looks good on a poster. So you've got uh, Kiefer Sutherland as Athos, 
the Moody Musketeer. We've got Charlie Sheen as Aramis, the sexy priest musketeer. You've got Oliver Platt as Porthos, the funny musketeer, who, I am pleased to report, has more sexual energy than anyone else in this movie, with the possible exception of the villain, Cardinal Richelieu, played by Tim Curry, mm. who seriously should have an honorary Oscar by now. Uh, yeah, Just he's, so, so he's, he's going to get roles. some sort of lifetime achievement award at to. some point, uh, especially with... Um, with like dudes our age, sort of uh, on those voting bodies now. When you, when you consider how many iconic roles he played and mm. how many movies he made dramatically better just by showing up mm. that day, uh, what, and, and, and he's great in this. He's so much fun. He's having yeah, a blast. He's, he's a good villain, and uh, Milady, the mysterious Milady, mm-hmm. is played by Rebecca De Mornay. Yes, uh, also a great get. And yeah, she yeah. and so she's sex symbol of the time. Yep. Uh, we've also got uh, as Captain Rochefort. Mm. Uh, a part, uh, uh, the basically, uh, Cardinal Richelieu can't really sword fight our heroes. He's, that's not the type of guy he is, so he needs, so he has a uh, a guy with one eye who's evil. Hmm. Uh, and uh, this is a part that had previously been played by the likes of like Christopher Lee. Uh, here he's played by Michael Wincott, playing the same character he played in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. <laughs> he's got an eye patch and he's French now. Same guy. Hmm. He's, if you don't know Michael Wincott, he was the main bad guy in The Crow uh, he has one of the great movie voices. My God. <laughs> this um, boy tried to, tried to hunt the, the sheriff of Pottingham's day. Swordfish, yeah. Uh, um, the, uh... uh. <laughs> Three Musketeers is to Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, as Dick Tracy is to Batman. Oh, definitely. There, there's your SAT analogy. Yeah. Like it definitely owes a lot to Young Guns for its like all star casting trick, mm-hmm. but this is Robin Hood Prince of Thieves. It, it was, they rip it off was, so much. They rip off a lot. They use a lot of the same talents. Mm-hmm. It's it's made the, in the same kind of the whole rescue uh, people idea. when they're about to be executed in public scene. That's mm-hmm. there too. However, like, the difference is uh, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves is is a very elaborate production. It's large it's and lavish, yeah. and they shot outdoors on on location and uh, kind of misty uh, British locales. Uh, the Three Musketeers is a much cheaper production, and it kind mm. of shows it's actually really interesting to watch what adventure films looked like in the early 90s compared to now, because yeah. they are so much less elaborate now. Yeah. Uh, there's just, like, less cutting. The stunts are uh, a lot less elaborate. They're, you know, they have, like, Chris O'Donnell doing some of his own stuff. Yeah. Uh, very there's, there's a bit where, uh, in the beginning, uh, D'Artagnan, D'Artagnan, uh, is... <laughs> It, it, he's a, a little bit of a ne'er do well, and he's fleeing a bad guy whose sister he has dishonored. Uh, oh, uh, and, uh, the bad guy, by the way, is played by Paul McGann, who you might hmm. recall as the American uh, Doctor Who. He wasn't ever yeah. American, but like there was that brief period where they were going to reboot Doctor Who as an American TV series. They made a pilot. Yeah, there's a pilot. They, yeah. they turned into a TV movie, but it's canon. So Paul McGann is one, one of the of, official of the doctor, doctors, yeah. and he did a lot of radio shows. So if you're a Doctor mm-hmm. Who fan, you're probably familiar with Paul McGann. Yeah, um, he's a fun actor. He's also playing he, a character who is coded very queer and is not treated well. He, he's well. He's he's a, fo- a foolish fop. Is is sort of the archetype mm-hmm. and. Uh, yeah, one of the opening scenes is uh, Chris O'Donnell fleeing from this guy in creative ways with a smirk on his face. And uh, there's a bit where he's, uh, I'm not even sure what it is, like some sort of grain mill that he grabs onto this yeah. big yard arm and, and swings, swings around, around in a yeah. gigantic circle. And, and that, I, I'm pretty sure that was Chris O'Donnell actually doing that. And, and that was, at, in 1993, a pretty big stunt. Yeah. 
It's pretty good stunt, actually. You, you and I fast say forward this. to something yeah. like the Pirates of the Caribbean, and they're doing sword fights on uh, you know rolling wagon wheels that are rolling down a hill. It's yeah. like, oh, and what with the CG, then they can start blending all these shots together. Everything's so it huge. It's so lo-fi makes, now. Everything, but everything's so huge in those movies that nothing makes an impact. Yeah. And I actually, I actually like the way the action shot in this movie. It's clean. You can always tell what's going on. Every once in a while, you can tell that like Charlie Sheen had a stunt double. But for the most part, people are doing the real work. The camera is far back enough that you can actually just appreciate the fencing. Mm. Um, there's a stunt at the beginning that made me laugh because um, uh, Chris O'Donnell is is uh, running from Paul again, mm. And he's running down this path in the forest. And on the path, there's a fallen tree. And the tree has fallen at like the height that would like knock off Chris O'Donnell's head if he wasn't paying attention. Mm. And what he does is he like he jumps onto that and like walks on it and gets back on his horse. It's a fun, elaborate stunt. Uh, but there's a weird thing there. The tree has been there for so long that there's actually grass and flowers growing on it. It looks really, really pretty. But it's also mm. in the middle of the road where people are riding in horseback. So literally everyone like going down this path is going to hate this fucking tree and well, you know they would have chopped it down by now. Well, it wasn't a tree. It, it wasn't a tree. It was it was a tunnel. It was like wide and flat. It wasn't just no. a tree. That's why it was dirt. It was like a path. They had clearly like bored a hole through something. Somebody dug a but hole. But why would they do it badly? Why would they do it in such <laughs> uh, a way clearly, they would knock your head off if you were on a horse? Clearly it was it was made long before they were riding horses through that area. They were just walking really? on foot. I think it made perfect sense to me. I don't buy it. It's a little but, thing, but I don't buy it. But uh, Chris O'Donnell leaps off of his horse, runs across the top of this little abutment, and lands back on his horse as it runs yeah. out from the uh, the exit. And Fun the, little stunt. Paul McGann tries to do it, and the horse stops, and he falls off, and it's... <laughs> what a pratfall. What a, what a wacky guy. Chris O'Donnell's whole thing is he is leaving home in his small town uh, to become a musketeer because his father was a musketeer. And a mus- what is a musketeer, you might ask? Well, uh, a musketeer is the king's royal guard. It is an entire small personal army dedicated specifically to making sure nobody kills him. Hmm. And uh, when we g- cut to the royal palace, uh, we find out that Cardinal Richelieu, who is evil because he's played by Tim Curry, uh, has decided to disband the musketeers, hmm. ostensibly because there's an oncoming war with England and they need the musketeers at the front, hmm. which... Honestly, okay, that's not the, the worst excuse you could possibly have for leaving the yeah. king unguarded here. Uh, but uh, they, uh, yeah, so, but they announced to everybody, oh, by the way, you're all fired. Fuck off. Leave your hat and gun. And so they put in their muskets and their swords and they give everything up and they all leave. Well, they, they and that's the day that D'Artagnan shows up to get a, get, to get a job. So, yeah, bad yeah. time. I feel like that's been my life when I try to get writing gigs. It's like, hey, can oh. I apply for a job? Sorry, we're just banding. Ah, yeah, sh- sorry, we just pivoted the video. <laughs> Fuck! <laughs> Zuckerberg! Uh, <laughs> look up the pivot to video thing. Yeah. That is too much to go into. Um, they throw it on their swords. They don't throw it on their muskets. For being musketeers, there's not a lot of musketing going on. Yeah, I know. It's always funny to me. There, There is a Batman weapon where Porthos pulls out, like, a triple dagger. Where yeah. he, like, hits a button on his knife and it splits into three blades. It seems like that would be pretty impractical to, like, build. Yeah. But it's well, cool looking. He only uses it the once. You yeah. don't need to use it once. Um, yeah, he he runs in, uh, D'Artagnan, D'Artagnan runs into each of the three uh, musketeers in turn and runs afoul of them in some way. Yeah, this is all from the book. This is all classic stuff yeah. what happens is uh three musketeers have refused to retire 
That's Athos, Porthos, and Aramis. Uh, and uh, uh, Rochefort has been told by uh, Cardinal Richelieu uh, to track them down, do whatever it takes. Those are the worst of the musketeers, a.k.a. the best. And uh, Rochefort said, of course, I will look everywhere for them. Uh, they're literally all within a two-minute walk of the building. In fact, one <laughs> of them was literally in the building. So Kiefer Sutherland is literally in the building, and D'Artagnan shows, sorry, D'Artagnan shows up, <laughs> and he's just like, hey, can I be a musketeer? He's like, no, they've disbanded. And D'Artagnan's like, oh, you're a jerk. Kiefer Sutherland's like, the fuck did I do? He's like, nothing. He's like, meh. And so Kiefer Sutherland's like, okay, fine. I'll challenge you to a fucking duel. Shut your mouth. And he's like, okay, fine. I'll see you at the thing at noon. And he's like, fine. This, this is all from the book, by oh, yeah. the way. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they don't always happen the exact Dar- same D'Artagnan is a young hothead, and the Three Musketeers are sort of his bosses. If, I've actually never read the book, but I've seen a lot of adaptations oh, of right. Three Musketeers. Uh, and I, I have read the book, and okay. it's it's... It's thrilling. It's just yeah. su- such a delight. In in the movies that I've seen, usually what mm. I recall is that when D'Artagnan leaves his home, someone like an uncle or something tells him that when you get there, mm. fight as many duels as you can. It'll boost your like your, your cred, cred. Yeah, your street cred. Yeah. So that's why he's challenging all these guys to duels. But they don't do that here. Mm. So he just looks like a piece of shit. Yeah. This so is th- th- this challenging is, all the duels for nothing. We say this is from the literature, but this does not have the tone of Dumas at oh. all. This this is all very hip. This, this is, is all, all very frothy, very, very frothy and, like, 90s kind of action blockbuster A, a tone movie. I quite like, by the way, and it's not necessarily the worst approach to this material, but it is its own thing. Well, that's the wonderful thing about The Three Musketeers, is that they can be updated to whatever the uh, actual uh, sort of action languages of the day. Yeah. They, they are that, it's that versatile a story. And, yeah. it, and we, we've taken so many action tropes from it that it's okay to update it. Um, yeah. And I've seen a lot of Three Musketeers movies, uh, and that are all slightly different in tone and they're yeah. all pretty, pretty much delightful. Um, yeah. Some of them are bad. Some of them are good, but they all work. Yeah. It's, it's such it's, a, it's such a straightforward, hmm. like the structure is so, is so sharp that it's actually hmm. hard to screw it up. I, I didn't see the one with, uh, was it Mila Jovovich played Milady? Oh in, yeah. Um, the Paul W.S. Anderson version. Yeah. I didn't see that one. I did and, not care for that version. I've been meaning to rewatch all, like, it. Steampunk and they got like yeah. flying ships and shit. I'm, I'm not opposed to that, but I just didn't think it worked, but mm. you know, I've been meaning to rewatch that. I know some people really like that one. Okay. I, I don't hate Paul W. S. Anderson. I actually like some of his movies, but no, I, th- I think he's just fine. Uh, yeah, I think he's, he's made some—he's made some real crap, but he's also made some stuff I really think is fun, even though it's stupid. It, so. It's it's the kind of it's like Stephen Summers syndrome. Like yeah. it's stupid crap, but uh, oh, come on, it's kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, real fast, uh, he he runs into Porthos. And he just, he he like makes Porthos spill something and he's like, hey, whoa, my fucking scarf, dude. I got this from the Queen of America. And D'Artagnan is like, there's no (laughs) Queen of America. And Porthos is like, you mother, what, 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 duel. He's like, okay, fine, duel, sorry. And so then he runs into Aramis who is uh, running away because he was like macking on some dude's wife. And then uh, Aramis falls on him and apologizes. And D'Artagnan's like, you're an asshole. He's like, I apologized. Mm. And he's like, well, yeah, duel. So fine. So all, he's got duels with all three of the three musketeers. Uh, and uh, yeah. Kiefer Sutherland, you said he's the broody one. And Kiefer Sutherland is just doing his job. He's oh, playing yeah. He's playing the broody guy. I don't think he's bringing a whole lot to no. Athos. No, he's not. Uh, he's, Oliver, he gets the pathos, but it doesn't work. Oliver Platt is 
as always, bringing his A-game. Uh, because Oliver Platt is just one of the great comedic actors of his generation, frankly. Yeah. Uh, he is great in everything, and yeah. he is... I've he never seen a bad Oliver Platt funny. performance. Never once. He's been life. in bad movies. Oh, lots of times, um, but he's always the best part. I, I think, even though the film's not that great, I think his star performance was in a film called The Imposters, which he yeah. made with Stanley Tucci. Part of that play, movie have not aged well, but it's... There, there's, there's, the, there's a lot of homophobia in it that doesn't play yeah. very well, but uh, yeah. it, it's... The overall... Which didn't even at the time, like a lot yeah. of a lot of critics picked up on that. The but, uh, overall madcap tone of that mm. is really, really good, and he's very, very funny. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, he's he's. I I, I actually um, I've never interviewed Oliver Platt, but I did run into him once. Okay, <laughs> and I was actually right after I'd seen the movie Chef. I was at South by Southwest. Okay, and uh, normally I don't do parties at those things, but oh, I saw no, the movie yeah. Chef. And they promised at the party there would be Cubanos, and you cannot see the <laughs> no. movie Chef and not want a sandwich. Uh-huh. You will want a sandwich after you see the movie Chef. So I was like, all right, I'll take the fucking sandwich, fine. So I, I got the sandwich, sandwich is great, and who happened to be there like getting a sandwich when I was but Oliver Platt, who's in the movie as a food critic. And I actually told him, and I, and I meant this. I really like him in that movie because at the start of the movie, he seems like he's the asshole critic. And it seems like John uh, Favreau had made a movie about how critics don't understand real art. Mm. But at the end of the movie, he, he makes a point that, like, no, John Favreau completely misinterpreted. It. He's like, he j- I'm just telling it like it is. I want to like your food. Yeah. <laughs> and indeed, when he when yeah. he does something that impresses him, he says so. And he's indeed, the first one. Uh, he's the first one to say so. And yeah. he, he even offers to, like, co-fund this thing because he believes in him so I much. I like the portrayal of criticism in that movie quite yeah. a bit. And I was told, like, there aren't a lot of movies that I feel... Like have a character who's a critic who's actually treated well as a character with some sort of understanding of what goes into that. And I thought you did a great job. He was very nice. Mm. Um, that I don't know any any beyond that. But uh, I, I like so, meeting him because I'm a fan. I think yeah, Oliver Platt's yeah. a really great actor, and and he's the best part of this movie quite easily. Well, he and Tim, Tim Curry, Curry, Tim Curry, um, come on, and and. Rebecca De Mornay sashaying about in yeah. uh, in her elaborate gowns. Yeah. Uh, but then we have Charlie Sheen, who is bringing nothing. No. He is not. He has no energy. He has no, no. character. He's just sort of flatly reading his lines. He quotes the Bible a couple times, which just to give you the idea that he's supposed to be the religious one with uh-huh. like Christian principles. But no. that's not part of his character, really. Now, now, Charlie he, Sheen. He he want he wanted so bad to just give a standee, like a cardboard standee of himself. <laughs> so yeah, that's me, and he slips away. Well, this the story goes that when they were making this movie, uh, most of the cast did like a solid six week boot camp of like horse riding and mm. fencing and all the important stuff in order to make it in order to sell it. Yeah, uh, Charlie Sheen did not do that. He was making Hot Shots Part Two, so he just showed up on the set. Oh god! <laughs> Apparently, he hated horses. There's a reason why a lot of the times when Charlie Sheen is like sword fighting, he stops sword fighting and just punches a guy. Yeah, he is he is sleepwalking through yeah, this he damn really, thing. Really is. Um, uh, and D'Artagnan is Chris O'Donnell, and Chris O'Donnell's just sort of the, the he, young surfer dude. His whole thing is he's supposed to be naive. He gets away with it. He's not great, but no. he's good at the physicality, and I think that's really no, important I, uh, with D'Artagnan. I, I was watching this with my wife, and uh, she she and I came to the conclusion that Although he's a little too old for it at the time, Emilio Estevez would have made a good D'Artagnan, especially Ooh. if you got if this had been made like a decade before, like Repo Man years. Yeah, it was sort of like the young punk. He would have been good he at any of those roles, honestly. Oh yeah, yeah. honestly, he could be good Athos. He would have mm-hmm. been a good Aramis. He, no one to be a better Porthos, but like he would have been a good Porthos. Um, 
Emilio Estevez, and I'll, I'll say this, he's been the butt of so many jokes. He was a punchline in a movie, The Night at the, a Night at the Roxbury. Yeah. Uh, it's like, we met a celebrity. It was Emilio Estevez. And that's supposed to be, say, like, kind of how pathetic those guys yeah. are. They were impressed that they meet, met yeah. Emilio Estevez. The Mighty Ducks kind of torpedoed his career. It was a big moneymaker for him, but he lost a lot of credibility as an actor. Yeah, he was seen as he was seen as like kind of like a big deal actor for a bit there, mm-hmm. and just he, but he was also one of those people who was so boyish that he wasn't really aging into his looks. Yeah, that, that, and that, that was, was they, part of people it. So didn't know what to do. It's like Tobey Maguire syndrome. Like people just don't know what to do with them right yeah, now, and that, that and that's affected generations of actors. Yes. You, you, Winona Ryder was another uh, one of those. A, she always looked yeah. young and that kind of there's like in, made a good girlfriend together role. Sal Mineo back in the yeah. day, how he said he he always looked like a kid and he Dude, couldn't get Judy no Garland. Dollars. Judy Garland. Yeah, they tried to make her look young for mm. so long that when she was finally like an adult, mm. nobody bought her as an adult. Yeah, because they was, were they were trying to make her uh, stay Ju- the Wizard of Oz actor for so long. There's a problem with Mickey Rooney as well. Yeah, uh, Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney. Um, yeah. So that there was a, a, an issue with Emilio Estevez. Uh, yeah. You, you go back to movies like Repo Man, you see that he has chops, uh, oh, yeah. and, and he's also a pretty good director as well. He is uh, actually. Yeah. Um, but. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, Stephen Herrick, like, both made and broke his career <laughs> shortly <laughs> after making The Three Musketeers. So he got to work with Sheena and Estevez. Um, brothers, Weird. in case you didn't know. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we, uh, there's, they all meet at the same spot. They're gonna, there's gonna be a big sword fight, and lo and behold, there's a big sword fight. Well, the Cardinal Richelieu's men show up, mm. and so instead of fighting the Three Musketeers, he agrees to fight Cardinal Richelieu's men. There's this really funny bit, actually, where they all fight Cardinal Richelieu's men, and it's a pretty good sword fight. I, honestly, like, it's... Pretty good. I'm just going to say it right now. I think the action work on this movie is solid. Amazing? Mm. No. Solid? Very much so. They all fight, and they've killed all the bad guys. And then the Three Musketeers are about ready to fuck off, and uh, uh, D'Artagnan's like, well, let me take, let me go with you. I, I wanted to be a musketeer, and you guys are the only ones left. And they're like, no, no, we're outlaws, and now you are too. And I'm like, we killed all of them. They didn't know I did that. Were they going to do forensic analysis on my rapier? <laughs> like, no, it's fine. The only reason he ends up in any trouble whatsoever is that after like the three musketeers leave, he rides off in another direction, sees like fifty of Cardinal Richelieu's men, and decides to charge like an idiot. So he gets arrested. He ends up escaping from the prison, and while he is escaping, he sees Cardinal Richelieu conspiring with Milady, a uh, femme fatale. Hmm. Played by Rebecca de Mornay, and they're conspiring well, the, to the, the to, archetypal femme fatale. Oh yeah, she, she's you know, kind of 18, where the trope 18, comes yeah. from. Eighteen forty-four, really. Dumas yeah. kind of invented it. Uh, uh, it's a longer, more complex uh, tradition, but you know, but one, like, one of the, the, the archetypes. A yeah. lot of the pulp, like femme fatale characters, we see in a lot of our stories, it stems from Milady. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, they're they're conspiring with, uh, I think it's Lord Buckingham. Well, yeah, I think so. Uh, and uh, the whole thing is... He they, doesn't have a big role in the movie. They're conspiring to start a war with England and also kill the King of France so Cardinal Richelieu can take over. Uh, and uh, as a result... And so she has to take a, uh, uh, a basically a contract to England and only D'Artagnan knows what ship it's on. And so when he finds the Three Musketeers, when he escapes, they have to get there before her and stop her from conspiring against the king before the king can be assassinated on his birthday. It's all very clean. And I don't like it. <laughs> I actually <laughs> want prefer... it to be a little bit more, more complicated. No, I prefer the original version. The mm. original version of this actually wasn't about like, oh, there's a contract. Like, no, actually, the problem was everyone's fucking each other too much. Yeah, the, everybody was having affairs and they were yeah. trying to hate. 
the, the actual, hide the affairs. And the yeah. original version of this is actually a little bit more complicated. It's maybe to a fault, but it, it's fun. Uh, the idea is that the queen and the king are not romantically compatible. And the implication is the king is probably queer. Mm. Um, I forget how clearly they say that. I've never read the book, but a lot of other versions of the movies, they go in that direction. Um, so the queen has been having an affair with a British noble. Mm. She gives the British noble uh, uh, some of her uh, jewelry as a token of her love. And Colonel Richelieu knows of this. And so he tells the king, hey, when you have your birthday party, you should tell the queen to wear that jewelry you got her. Mm. And if she doesn't, you'll know that she hates you. And the king's like, what? That's weird, but okay, let's do this. I'm easily, I'm very pliable and easy to manipulate. The, the king is is a boy. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's like a teenager. Yeah. Uh, he's, and he's, he's played by uh, an Irish actor named Hugh O'Connor. In this one he is. Uh, in yeah. this one, uh, yeah. who was um, uh, the kid from Rawhead Rex. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I did yeah. not put that together. That's awesome. Mm. Um, but uh, in any case, so what happens is the three musketeers have to get to England and get the jewelry back mm. so that the queen cannot be slut-shamed in front of everybody and start an yeah. international incident. It, that is what the original Three Musketeers was about. And uh, and it leads to my favorite scene in the Three Musketeers novel where uh, D'Artagnan has finally made it to uh, to Milady to get this, this mm-hmm. uh, piece of evidence. And uh, she, I think she's at an opera. She's at a show. She's in public. Something like that. Different. I've only seen uh, the movies. Different movies do it different. But ways. Uh, it's, it, it's so desperate though. It needs to happen right away. So, um, like she ends up like reaching behind the curtain, and D'Artagnan only gets to hold her hand. Doesn't even get to see her. But it's like the most romantic experience of his life. Just <laughs> taking this thing from her hand and holding her hand, just her hand. It's like yeah. Thing from the Adams Family for just a moment, and then leaving. It's like he's completely consumed now with Milady. Yeah. Uh, but they manage to get back in time and everything. And, and Milady like, uh, has yeah. a name, but like that's her codename. They just call well, her Milady. She has like a bunch of different names. Basically, yeah. she's married different people, and she's killed all her husbands and everything. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. Uh, but uh, but Disney, perhaps because it was simpler this way, or perhaps because it, it was too sexy, mm-hmm. uh, Disney decided not to go that route. Decided to just have a whole thing. We have to stop Milady from giving a guy a contract. Uh, however. Although they took out the whole everyone sleeping around bit, uh, they did leave in a scene about, and I'm quoting the film, wenching. There, there's two incredibly, uh, as the kids would say today, two very horny scenes in this movie. Mm-hmm. One is the scene where uh, Chris O'Donnell has no pants and the camera looks right down Rebecca de Mornay's blouse. There's like yeah. really lascivious uh, camera this, shots. This, this seductive scene yeah. with her and Chris O'Donnell. And it's, and it's all like, you know, he doesn't know the she's the spy. And, 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 yeah. and they're kind of fighting, but it's all really flirty and it they're works. all half naked. That um, one works. Yeah, and the other one is the wenching scene where uh, each of the three musketeers gets to give their advice on how, essentially, how to pick up ladies and how yeah. to kiss and touch And ladies. we're talking about like bar ladies who. It subtly implied that they're sex workers and this is all actually pretty easy and they're going about this all more complicated. But certainly they're very <laughs> eager regardless. And so the whole thing is, uh, Oliver Platt's like, let me tell you about the the delicate art of what he calls wenching, which is a pretty mm. shitty way to put it. But uh, his whole thing is, Yes, a quick joke and a smooch and make it a sexy smooch and you're great. And then Aramis is just like, yes, but if you say sexy words, they'll be more excited. And then Oliver Platt's like, pshaw with you. 
And so Aramis like gives the lady a poem, and the poem the lady's just like, "Oh, that is a sexy poem. Here's your smooches." And he's like, "That's great." And then D'Artagnan tries, sorry, D'Artagnan <laughs> try, tries I'm to do both things. He tries to do both things, and he fails miserably. And he ends up instead getting drunk with Athos, who doesn't go in for the whole. Oh, hi, Luca. How you doing, buddy? Cut. You have strong opinions about Three Musketeers. My cat wants uh, wants in on this. Luca, the cat, just like. Yeah. Put put his front feet on the table and tried to hit you. He likes the what he does is he'll like sit next to me. He'll sit next to me uh, when I'm sitting in my chair, and then he'll like put his paws up on the table, and then he'll reach one paw up, almost like he wants to high five me. <laughs> and he just wants he just wants attention. He just wants hey buddy, I love you. I'll, we'll play a little later, okay? We're doing a podcast. Um, but uh, but anyway, he ends up ends up getting drunk with Athos, who tells him a story which is totally not actually about Athos. But oh, it de- turns definitely not. Turns out there was a count who loved the lady once, but it turns out that like she was an accused murderer, and he was so offended he had her like executed, and he felt really bad about it. So yeah, love sucks. Don't do it, kid. And I'm like, the real message here is that Athos sucks. But um, he's 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 broody. Yeah. Which makes him attractive. Yeah. And of course, the twist is Milady was actually Athos's uh, wife. Mm-hmm. Um, Athos, uh, they, there's a big fight on a boat. They fight some guys. Some uh, of it's fun. Some the, of it's not. the pirate stuff was okay. It's okay. I, I love that um, Porthos mm-hmm. is, he seems like the most capable of the musketeers he is. as well. Yeah. He's, he's the funniest. He's the most charismatic. They should have just called it. Porthos the movie. Porthos, Porthos <laughs> and D'Artagnan. He runs away with the whole fucking film yeah. is what he does. And there's a Cupid I like where um, he actually like, he, he's on this ship and a bunch of sailors come up to fight him. And then they see him, it's like, Porthos the pirate! And they just run. Yeah. And D'Artagnan's like, sorry, D'Artagnan's like, <laughs> Porthos the pirate? It's like, what? I told you I traveled the world. What do you want from me? <laughs> it's cute. I like it. I like that he's the comic relief, but he's actually capable. This is something that some movies forget to do. If you're going to have like an action hero character who's the funny one, they also need to have a reason to be there besides no. being the funny one. This is one of the reasons why I prefer the uh, uh, extended cut of The Two Towers to okay. the theatrical cut. Because the character of Gimli, hmm. uh, played by John Rhys-Davies... So, sort of a comic relief character. Well, and or... here's the deal. He's, he's, he's a dwarf and he says a lot of funny things because there's like a culture clash uh, kind of thing. Uh, and... In the first movie and the second movie, he also gets to kick a lot of ass. Everyone there is a warrior, right? Yeah. In the second movie, he kind of doesn't really. Okay. I mean, he, he's there in the final battle, but like he's mostly there for like short jokes. And you know, mm. Legolas is like, "Oh, can I get you a box?" That kind of thing. Yeah. And he's just like, "Ah, I love eating," like that kind of thing. And he's just in the theatrical version, he's a comic relief character. He doesn't get anything to do. In the, the- in the extended cut, Legolas and Gimli are having a running tally of who can kill the most orcs in the final battle. Oh, that, that's, that's, that's in the movie. Yeah. And, in the th- and in the extended cut, hmm. we find out Gimli won. Oh, really? <laughs> and that redeems him! That redeems that, that there, basically says ga- he was the tough one! there was a gag because they have, like, war yeah. mammoths or some shit in that movie. Well, that, and, and you're thinking of Return of, the, of uh, Return of the King. That's one with mammoths, but... Okay, yeah. just, I, I remember uh, the, the, the elf character murdered an entire war yeah. mammoth. Like, somehow he killed it. And and Gimli's joke was that still counts as one kill. Like it was yeah. this big impressive. Well, they they'd already done it in the two towers. They were continuing the oh, okay. the gag in Return of the King. But yeah, in the extended cut of the two towers, I found out Gimli won. And I always thought that was a really really great way to sort of just say, yeah, sorry, we made you tell so many jokes this time and not do a lot. Yeah. Like you're, you're gonna be here here you're cooler than Legolas. Um, 
comparing this to a film that came after another uh, Three Musketeers film, The Man in the Iron Mask. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, Which uh, was good. A, a little bit more of a classed-up joint. Um, yeah. It was Leonardo DiCaprio hot off of Titanic, and mm-hmm. he played uh, the evil the evil king and The Man in the Iron Mask. Uh, the Man ru- in the Iron Mask. Ru- ruining the, spoiling the ending of The Man in the Iron Mask. Well, it's spoiling the middle of the movie, yeah. anyway. The, 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 it's not only, it wasn't just after Titanic, it was right after Titanic. Titanic was still number one at the box office when Man in the Iron Mask premiered. That's right. And it came in, like, second or third. <laughs> <laughs> like it's still, it's still, it still didn't be Titanic. It's a uh, brand new DiCaprio movie. No one cared. But the Three Musketeers in that one were played by uh, John Malkovich, Jeremy Irons, and Gerard Depardieu. And uh, D'Artagnan was played by Gabriel Byrne. Right. And boy, is that a great cast! Yeah, for seriously. anything. And uh, and Gerard Depardieu plays Porthos in that one. And in that movie, they're a little older. Like they're, oh, they're that, retired. They're, yeah, they're, yeah, they're kind of. Re- uh, not the action stars they used to be, so they're kind of like coming to terms with the fact that they just can't be the adventurers they once were, but they get to pull it out for one last adventure. But Porthos is considered, uh, he, he's the comic relief character. Yes, yes. And he's kind of the pathetic character, and he doesn't get a lot, like he wins battles by luck. He's more like Falstaff yeah. uh, by that point. And, no, I agree, yeah. And uh, it, it is kind of a pity that the funny comic relief action star tends to, tilt towards Falstaff more than Oliver Platt as Porthos. Yeah, or Gilly, I would take, even as long as you focus on the badass version. But yeah, exactly. Porthos is a great character. I do like Falstaff. I figure Mm -hmm. he's an archetype for a reason. Mm, But he's not a badass, is he? No. He's a tragic fool. Exactly. The the whole point is that he's not a badass. He's a a, a lying coward who lies about his conquests. Porthos is a legit action hero, and Mm -hmm. he could have totally had a a spinoff off of this. Um. I didn't see the the uh, Richard Lester version. Who played Porthos in that one? Oh, who, who played, played Porthos? This? Yeah, it um, was Richard Chamberlain was Aramis, mm. and Oliver Reed was Athos, and there's a French yeah. actor whose name I can't recall. Well, I'm going to find out. Hang on, because actually, I was going to I was going to bring this up. I was going might as well ask you now. What is your favorite version of the Three Musketeers as a movie? Uh, not this. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, fair enough. That's a good question. Um, yeah, because I've been done a million times. Yeah. There's a Gene Kelly version, which is very respectable. Um, let's see who played Porthos. Porthos was oh, I was wrong. It was uh, Frank Finlay. Frank who was who was English. He just did a pretty good French accent, I All guess. Right. Uh, he was in the Laurence Olivier Othello. He was Iago. Oh, okay. Uh, so, yeah, respectable actor, mm-hmm. and he's good. He's actually mm-hmm. quite good in it. Um, but he's no Oliver Platt. Like, I will say that personally, I think the Richard Lester Three Musketeers is the best mm-hmm. Three Musketeers. That's from uh, seventy three. Seventy three. It's also it was also much like uh, Superman two. They like kind of shot it as like a giant two parter, but then they separated it into two different movies. So it's the Three Musketeers mm-hmm. and the Four Musketeers. Four Musketeers is fine. Three Musketeers is great. It's got a great cast. The stunts are really, really good. The sword fighting is top notch. Uh, it's got a great sense of place, wonderful production design, mm-hmm. costumes. Uh, and even more so than this movie, it is horny as fuck. <laughs> it is so unbelievably horny, like you mm-hmm. wouldn't believe. And, and, listen, and again, speaking of good casts, let's look at this cast. Michael York is D'Artagnan. Right. Oliver Reed as Athos, Frank Thin- Finlay as Porthos, Richard Chamberlain as uh, uh, Aramis. Uh, you've got Geraldine Chaplin as the Queen. You've got Charlton Heston as Cardinal Richelieu. <laughs> you got Faye Dunaway as Milady. You got Christopher Lee as Count Rochefort. You've got Raquel Welch in there. You got Spike Milligan in there. You got Roy <laughs> Kinnear. You got Sybil Danning. Sybil Danning. Sybil Danning is in that fucking in the seventies. She was just like a, and she was still a teenager a, at that point. Yeah. yeah, that's an amazing cast. <laughs> that movie 
rules. And if, I've heard some people, funnily enough, by just sheer chance, mm. I heard someone, I saw someone tweeting uh, that uh, they think this Disney version of Three Musketeers is the best one. Um, I'm curious how many other ones you've seen. I'm not going to be judgmental. I, um, I just want to know what other ones you've seen. Because if you've seen the 73 version and the Disney version, mm. I, I would be a little surprised that the Disney one is your personal mm. favorite for reasons beyond nostalgia. Because the 73 version is a Amazing. I've seen the 48 version and when I was a kid. Is that the Gene Kelly version? That's the Gene Kelly yeah, version with Van Heflin, Lana Turner, June Ooh. Ellison, Angela Lansbury, wow. and, and Gene Kelly. The one I remember most fondly is when I saw in college, it was the silent version from 1921 oh, with Douglas Fairbanks Ooh. as... as, um, as D'Artagnan? I think D'Artagnan. Okay. Let, let me look up the cast of this one. Yeah, um, uh, yeah Douglas Fairbanks played D'Artagnan. Um other other actors, uh, Eugene Pallet played Aramis. Oh, cool! Yeah, uh, wow, that would have been Aramis cool. played Aramis, oh, really? a young Eugene Pallet. Eugene yeah. Pallet, if you, you don't Eugene, know the name, Eugene, where's my breakfast, Pallet? Eugene Pallet uh, became best, probably best known as like a character actor mm. in like comedies in the '30s and '40s, and he was a big guy who talked like a fucking buzzsaw. You know, <laughs> he's, he's wonderful. Like, ah, everyone in here has got a... like that's kind of so. It's weird to think of him as like. Mm. The action one, but that's cool. I really want to see that movie now. I can't believe I've never seen mm. that one. Um, oh, <laughs> um, what's up? An actor named Walt Whitman played D'Artagnan's father, and I oh. thought for a second, wait a minute. <laughs> Boy, well, would that have been the Walt Whitman thing. was not in movies. <laughs> Maybe he was. Maybe he lived longer than I thought. Uh, no, it's it, an actor named okay. Walt Whitman. Jesus Christ. Anyway. Yeah, I, I remember really liking the silent version okay. when I saw it in college. So I, that's cool. I, I'm going to be the snot and say the silent version is the best. Perfectly fine. Um, anyway, but uh, back to this one. Uh, yeah, there's Walt, this... Walt Whitman died in like 1890s. Anyway, they 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 arrest Lady uh, Milady uh-huh. and uh, Kiefer Sutherland's like, "Hey, sorry about everything," and she's like. Fuck you. And he's like, fair enough. And then she's about to be executed. And just as she's about to be executed, Kiefer Sutherland's like, no! I I can't live without your forgiveness. Can I make this all about me? And she's like, fuck. God, you know what? Fuck it. Here's the whole plan. I don't care anymore. And she just jumps off a cliff, which apparently is the very first character in all of Disney history to kill themselves on camera. Really? I, so I've heard. What? I can't think of another example. There's got to be something. To kill themselves. I'm, I'm, Not I'm, to fall and die. I'm pretty sure I've seen, like, Donald hold a pistol to his head. <laughs> yeah, but he survived. Well, he's, he's a cartoon duck. Of course he survived. <laughs> but he still tried. I don't know. For me, I was like, she jumped off a cliff. We don't see her fall. We don't see her splat. I'm like, she could have made it. It could have been a cliff dive. You know, she could be fine. <laughs> um... Uh, then again, I my, think the, the ending most, of The Wrestler is happy, so what the fuck do I know? The, the most notable, uh, they, they played suicide for a joke in Christopher Robin, and it just made oh, me realize right. they ma- did with, made with me Eeyore realize trying to kill himself, that, and he can't. Yeah, like, the, 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 the true tragedy of Eeyore is that he's perpetually depressed and he can't die. Like, the first time we see him, he's floating down a river, and he's saying... My latest suicide attempt didn't work again. It's like, holy shit, this is dark. That movie is that. That is a twisted fucking movie. That movie is weird and bad. It's so bad. Anyway. It's so bad. Anyway, they have to race back with the evidence and... uh, You know, they get there just in time and, you know, they fight a bunch of guys. The last fight's pretty cool. A lot of cool fighting, a lot of uh, jumping around. Again, Chris O'Donnell, not an amazingly charismatic actor, but good, like, physical presence. He was a Mm. good... There's a reason they cast him as Robin. He could fight, he could jump around, he looks good doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
and and uh, he's fine as sort of like the the sexed up updated version of Robin that Joel Schumacher came up yeah, with. Yeah. I think he's fine as Robin for that version of Robin. Not my favorite version of Robin, but that's a good Robin. He's fine with that. It's fine. Yeah, it's not for, as, for, for that kind of Batman film. He certainly he's fans. he's what you needed. Um. I forgot. Remember, did you ever see that other Musketeer version? Uh, the Musketeer, directed by Peter Hyams. Uh, it was one of those films that I saw pieces of, so uh, don't, not really. This is a, this is a, a novel version of the Three Musketeers because it, the it idea was of, Yen Wu Ping wasn't uh, it? Didn't he? Didn't no, I don't think it was Yen Wu Ping. It was another. Uh, but basically, what happened was uh, Peter Hyams was like, "Hey, let's do a version of the Three Musketeers, but we're going to make." Uh, we're going to so make all make the like, action sequences. It's like a kung fu movie. We're going, yeah. It was right after the Matrix, mm. and so the idea was we're going to do. All, it was a. Uh, it was. It wasn't Yan Ping. Yeah, was stunt choreographer was Shin Shin Shong. Okay, but a notable Hong Kong stunt. Yeah, choreographer. he was he was a Jet Li stunt double for a while. He all worked right. on uh, once the Once Upon a Time in China movies. Oh, okay, uh, which is makes sense because they pretty much rip off one of the biggest action sequences from those movies. And the I, I, in I the knew film. I knew it was. Hong Kong talent in that movie. Yeah. Anyway, uh, the, it was not a hit. Mm. It didn't have a great cast, although uh, Tim Roth played Rush for, and that's actually a pretty good uh, cast in there. Um, but uh, the stunts are great. And if you just want to see a version of The Musketeer where the stunts are just like, wow, holy fucking shit, the fuck is, whoa! <laughs> like jumping around on like beer barrels and doing like full splits while you're fighting and shit. Looks cool. <laughs> like again the cast is yeah the plot is yeah and there's a part where uh d'artagnan's girlfriend clearly dies but uh, that ending also clearly didn't test well so even though her lips aren't moving and she's not moving you can hear mina suvari say i'm not dead would you please kill the bad guy and he's like <laughs> okay great so he runs after the bad guy with all the rage of someone whose girlfriend is dead even though we literally know she's fine like it doesn't work at all it's so bad but the stunts are amazing so that's that's a neat version um I digress. Uh, so it's a big fight. D'Artagnan becomes uh, uh, the king. We haven't really talked about Tim Roth because Tim Roth just nails it. Oh, you mean Tim, Tim Curry. Curry? We haven't, Tim, we haven't talked about Tim Roth because he's not in it. We haven't talked about <laughs> Tim Curry because Tim Curry is perfect. Yeah. He he's is. everything he needs to be. Hmm. And I kept thinking about the dialogue he has in this movie and how is it's it... not very good, but because he's saying it hmm. and because he's just like, I'm so powerful, I can just tip my hat at how evil I am constantly and no one can do a goddamn thing and I'm making myself laugh. That is a fun character trait for oh. a villain. Tim Tim Curry classed up every joint he was in. Uh, he... Um, his his he wasn't uh, getting a lot of a gigs throughout the nineties. He started no. showing up and stuff like McHale's Navy yeah. and and uh, Charlie's Angels and these. Well, started doing a lot uh, one, more one like, of the scary movie movies. He started uh, doing more animated work. He was yeah. in, what did I say it like that? Animated work. Uh, he was the bad guy in Fern Gully. Yeah, he. Yeah. Um, there was a Tales from the Crypt uh, audio series. What uh, that they made at one point. I have no uh, memory in, of this. In, I think the the early two thousands and. Yeah, and they got like an all star cast. There's one, there's a most dangerous game where uh, Gina Gershon is hunting Luke Perry. Uh, yeah. They uh, and Tim Curry is in one of them because of course he is. They got John Cassier to play the, the crypt keeper, and uh, Tim Curry is the narrator. And it takes you until the end of the series to realize that he's playing a trunk, like a footlocker. <laughs> 
Like he's playing. He's playing like a talking Footlocker. What? And, well, it's is it's, that the twist? Well, it, it kind of. The idea Weird. is he's narrating the story and he talks about having you know he's best friends with the main character and the main character is this poor abused girl who's constantly locked in a trunk and huh. uh, and she grows up to be this sort of like twisted murderer because she's so like horrendously abused and she kills her parents, but. Uh, it and you know Tim Curry's like, oh, I miss her. I miss her so much. And you realize that he's the trunk that she was locked in. He's playing the voice that's of the trunk. So weird. And that's one of the, those things that you could only do in audio because there's no visual element to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. That's that's such a weird fucking thing. Yeah, it, that one's really. I, yeah. I encourage you to look up the the Tales from the Crypt audio drama. It's mm. one of Tim Curry's like yeah. m- more notable roles from that era. Uh, also notable from that era, movie you, you're a huge fan of. He played uh, Long John Silver in Muppet Treasure Island. Yes, indeed the the best the best Treasure Island movie. <laughs> okay, I'm not going to fight you on best Treasure uh, Island movie. I'm not sure it's the best Muppet movie. Uh, but it's, it's my it's, it's my favorite Muppet yeah. movie. Um, there uh, the Muppet movie is probably just better as cinema experience. I, I actually think the Muppet Christmas Carol is where it peaked but fair enough the uh they, they came out right next to each other it was did. the same creative team we we can have them both yeah they're, they're they're good companion pieces but there's a movie he did in the late 90s that people totally forget about and i and i watched for the first time not that long ago and i gotta say not as bad as you might think adam's family reunion where he played gomez hmm. Raul julia passed away after he did the first two adam's family movies and they did a tv movie sequel starring uh, Tim Curry as Gomez and Rebecca de Mornay as Morticia. Not Rebecca oh, de uh, uh, Daryl uh, Hannah. Daryl Hannah. I was, Morticia, I was thinking yeah. of Daryl Hannah. Uh, Rebecca, de Mar- Rebecca de Mornay could have played a good Morticia. There's a lot of people who would be good in the yeah. family roles, and you're just waiting for that moment. We're like, God, please, someday. Well, in the animated version, it was uh, Shirley Theron and Oscar Isaac. It would be also and great in live it's action. It's like, just put them in live action. It'd be amazing. Tim Curry plays Gomez, but he plays more of like the John Aston Gomez, a little bit more kooky, a little bit less yeah. sexy. Uh, but he's great, actually. Uh, it's a good the, cast in a dorky little TV movie. But if you like those other two movies, and did you hear? His, don't uh, avoid it. It's cute. Did you hear? Is going to play Gomez Adams in the in the TV series? Luis Guzman. Luis Guzman is cool. going to play Gomez Adams. I'm totally down for that. I think that's I really like cool. That a lot. I, I, I need to look up who's playing Morticia in that version. But I know oh. Luis Guzman is playing Gomez. Yeah, I think uh, this, this is, is in isn't the, the t- show just called Wednesday. It's called Wednesday. It's uh, the Wednesday Adam TV series, and it's yeah. uh, uh, every, evidently every episode is going to be Catherine Zeta Jones. Is Morticia. <laughs> well Bravo. done. Well done. Bravo. Good job. Catherine Zeta Jones and Luis Guzman. My God. I love it and, so much. And I think it's the girl from Dumbo playing Wednesday. I don't know. I don't yeah. know. Jenna Ortega. Oh, is, okay. I guess it's not. Uh, uh, what would you know from? She was in Insidious Chapter 2. Uh, I, I saw like it. You do? <laughs> she was in The Babysitter Killer Queen. I didn't see that. She was on the TV series You, which is anyway, very hard to Google. <laughs> Same with the TV series C. Anyway, we digress. Uh, but, uh, uh, but the movie there's, ends. There's and, a really well. Yeah. Uh, before we leave Tim Curry, um, there's there's a great bit where he get, he gets his villain speech. Yeah, and he's being confronted by the king, who's sort of like this wilting flower character. Yeah, and he's like, I finally musters I've, up his courage. I've, I've heard that uh, some rumors about you, and he gets to have this great speech. Oh yes, I've heard the rumors as well. What is it that I'm plot? And he says the plot of the movie. Literally says I'm, the plot of the that movie. I'm, I'm conspiring with this uh, British man to assassinate you and take the throne. Yes, I've heard that. I've also heard that I can 
call birds out of the sky and have magical powers. Well, he goes on as well as, I'm also trying to steal your wife and I'm conspiring with the devil. And when he throws in the fake stuff at the end, I'm like, I just assumed that was happening on screen. Anyway. Like, oh, maybe he is. I don't know. It's like, uh, yes, yeah, so, and there's this one wonderful bit where he's, it's just like during a fencing tournament, so he's like holding a sword. It's like, yes, and I've, I've heard some things, uh, there's even more expedient ways to go about it. He's sort of like holding the sword. You think he's going to spin around and stab him right yeah. there. Great villain so moment. Amazing. Tim Curry just handles it so well. It, that's just yeah. like classic cinema villain kind of stuff. Anyway, it all ends with D'Artagnan becoming a musketeer. Everyone's like, great, D'Artagnan's a musketeer. And then Paul McGann shows up again. And D'Artagnan's like, well, still haven't settled this subplot. Everyone's mm. like, no, we're all chased that, that one coded gay guy out of the film and just before the credits and I'm like cool weird he's wearing the makeup he's been playing very effeminate it's just a weird note to end on but what if, uh, oh, what if he's the Scarlet Pimpernel oh god that crossover that would actually be cool but uh, <laughs> but, uh, but that's the Three Musketeers and uh, of course there was a, that hit song that uh, well, is the, fine uh, the score is petering off as the credits begin to roll and we see the credit for the song right before the song begins to play. <laughs> They're really proud of this damn thing. Well, what they did is actually, and this is something I actually always like, mm. uh, is, well, almost always, uh, when they know what the theme song is going to be before they did the score oh, or, they, or they or they built the theme the song around the score. sounds like the song. It's yeah. like the Titanic, you know, mm. that's, they, well, they happened, they did the score and they decided to add lyrics to it and make a song out of it. Mm. That's how we got the Titanic theme. Uh, a, but James Bond does this mm. a lot when they have like their, their big song and they sort of write the score around it so mm. the score is always reminding you of the theme yeah. song and it gives everything a bit of personality so this all there for one a... and all for love song mm. is peter is like peppered throughout the movie Man. yeah i like it actually i think it i think it, again the song is corny fluff Oh God, I hate the song. So I don't. Much. I don't hate the, uh, it, but it is corny fluff, and by God, was it overplayed? I I hate Brian Adams. Uh, Brian oh. Adams also did that song. Uh, Do you really love a woman from Don, from Don, Don Juan to Marco? Yeah. <sighs> and uh, <laughs> and you're gonna hate the song too once I tell you. And this is a, a bit of information that my wife gave me because oh. she's a big REM fan, and okay. uh, and so she's followed the career of Michael Stipe very closely. Okay. Um, the original version of that song that. Brian Adams usurped was going to be a duet between Michael Stipe and Tori Amos. What? In 1995. And they recorded one and they decided not to use it. So that song has been locked in a vault thanks to Brian fucking Adams. So that's never come out. It's never that's come out. That's not on YouTube we, we don't. We don't, know, we don't know what that song sounds like. A, a love duet between Michael Stipe and Tori Amos in 1995. And this, and this is peak Tori Amos, by the way. Yeah, this is when Tori, before Tori Amos went a little more mainstream and rock. Like, she's yeah. still, like, quirky piano Tori yeah, Amos. Yeah, this is still Songs to a Quiet Girl Hotel and uh, yeah, Raspberry well, Swirl. Okay, that's fucking... The, 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 yeah, this is under the pink era. Uh, wow, Tori Amos. that's and, a good uh, era for Tori Amos. Yeah. <laughs> she had, like, three or four amazing albums of the uh, 90s. Under the Pink is great, by oh, the way. Yeah. The whole record. And, yeah. and this is, you know... Right after Monster, so this is you know yeah. REM is still no, spreading the world. Ooh. Okay, uh, now I am pissed. Yeah, <laughs> that sucks. Uh, yeah, then Brian Adams came in. Oh my god, with his big stupid stupidness, and wrote, "Do you ever really love a woman?" I mean, it paid and, off. They they clearly are happy with how it turned out. Yeah, and and, yeah. and the song was a hit, but yeah, mm, uh, that's how I feel um, about um um. I think it's is it. I don't remember one of the Pierce Brosnan bonds. I can't remember if it was Tomorrow Never Dies or The World Is Not Enough. Mm. Um, I think it's The World Is Not Enough. Uh, there, they there, was had, a, there was Garbage did the song. Okay, then I think it's Tomorrow Never Dies. Then, where they actually, they had a, they do this thing sometimes where they ask a couple of different musicians to do a song and they decide which one they like best. Oh, okay. 
And uh, there's one of those where uh, you know they picked one, but then Katie Lang did the, did a song that they didn't use. Oh no! And they use it over the closing credits, and it's such a better song. <laughs> oh, I want to. I think yeah. it's tomorrow never does. I don't want to confirm mm. that before we go here because listen to them back to back and it's on Bond. There, there have been some bad song. Bond songs recently. I, I don't yeah. even remember a lot. It was tomorrow never dies. So you can hear the yeah, Cheryl yeah. Crow version, which is, yeah. eh. and then you hear the Katie Lang version, which is pretty fucking good. Yeah. The uh, the only Daniel Craig Bond song I like is actually the one from Quantum of Solace. Really? Is, Most people hate that one. Well, I don't like the vocals on it because it's Alicia Keys and Jack White. They don't go together. And they don't go all. together. No. They're, they're get a different people. vocalist and that's a fun song. Yeah. I either re- replace either of them, honestly. Get someone who goes with Jack White or get someone who goes with Alicia Keys, yeah. preferably the latter. <laughs> You've got a better song. I agree or, with Or just there. get one of them to do it. But yeah, yeah. I, I didn't like the Casino Royale. Like, what was it? Call Me By Your Name or uh, uh, something You Know My Name. You Know My Name. Yeah. Uh, and that's okay. The Adele song is... You like Skyfall? It's fine. I like Skyfall. Um, I don't, I'm not a huge. I don't hate it the way some people do. Not a huge fan of the Spectre song. It's uh, yeah. too much of a downer, and I'm sorry, man. That song, the movie is enough of a downer as it is. You needed a that's, counterpoint. You didn't that, need to underline. That's why it. I like another way to die. It's like yeah. the upbeat one of the Daniel yeah. Craig film, uh, yeah. songs, even though the vocals suck. I really hope after Daniel mm. Craig is gone, we have an upbeat James Bond movie. It mm. doesn't have to be chipper. But can at the very least not be a slog? Because I mean, Skyfall. I mean, I, I know why people love Skyfall. Don't get me wrong. Skyfall is a dour movie. Yeah, Spectre yeah. is an exceptionally dour movie. There's, you know, they're supposed to be entertaining, right? We're supposed to actually have a good oh, time. The, we're, we're still in the post 9-11 James Bond. I had a good time with Casino Royale. That had yeah. some serious bits, too. Like, you can do them both. Yeah. But, anyway, I digress. but anyway, the Three uh, Musketeers. Three Musketeers. Uh, I hate Brian Adams. That's where we were. Um, <laughs> I hate Rod Stewart. Oh, okay. I'm not in, sure what he ever in, did to individually, you. Individually, he wrote bad songs that I hate. I, I don't like and, I, I like I like Rod Stewart fine. And, uh... Sting? I, Sting? I like Sting as a person, and okay. uh, and I think there, there are some police songs I like, but I like making fun of Sting because police sell themselves as kind of this tough, quirky band, but they're they're like the wimpiest of the tough, quirky bands. They're called bands. the police. The police. Uh, how much Greg, more... Greg Proops has so many bits of making fun. It's like, oh, what, what are you going to call yourself Like to, to show that you're subverting authority as a rock band and are to, appealing to the rebellious <laughs> instincts of the youth? Yeah. Oh, the police, the opposite of what you should have called yourself. Yeah, I'm going to start uh, a- Gonna start a band and call it Conservatives. I'm gonna give myself a really cool name like Sting. Yeah, Whitney Seibold and the Conservatives are playing with the police tonight. The Hall Monitors. Actually, Hall Monitors would be good. (laughs) That's a good band name. Yeah, that's a good one. I like that one. That's funny. (laughs) The Police. Uh, So yeah, we got Sting, Brian Adams, and Ron Stewart. It's just this perfect suck quake. Of, of bad music that I hate. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I mean, and I heard it a lot and when it came out in 1993, so I just did not like it. And hear, hearing it again, all of the anger and all the bile just started coming back. <laughs> but as a movie, like, the, just, mm. like, we've, we've talked it to death. Oh. Uh, overall, as mm. a film, how is this Three Musketeers to you? Uh, it, it's it's light and passable. It's too light for its own good. Mm. It does, bec- Oliver Platt and Tim Curry are the only things that have personality in this. Yeah. Uh, you cast Charlie Sheen and he's not a kook. What are you doing? Yeah. You cast well, Kiefer- I guess he had done Hot Shots already. Yeah. Mind. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. People knew it was he, a kook. he can do something with a, a lot more broadly than he did. He didn't was, do anything. In this there was movie. a period where people didn't seem to know he was a kook, mm. and by this point, we'd figured it out. You're right. Mm. That's that's it's absurd. Uh, you cast Kiefer Sutherland. Sutherland, who can do dark roles, he's played like vampires and stuff already yeah, at this point great. in his career. I, may, I understand he's supposed to be the dark one. Uh, he's played villains a lot in his movies. Yeah. He played the heavy a lot. Uh, 
this was his chance to do something a little bit different or a little bit more personality or bring a little bit more intensity to it. Mm-hmm. But he didn't. He was clearly holding back. Well, the um, character's a little underwritten. Stephen Herrick uh, is a weird director, and I think he was trying to do something a little bit more mainstream with this. Yeah. And he succeeded, and that's disappointing. Mm. That he was able to do something a little bit more acceptable. I, I want the it's almost like Guy Ritchie's Aladdin. Yeah, you you watch that Aladdin yeah. movie, and you'd never guess that Guy Ritchie directed it. I, I want the guy with the dark sense of humor. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure is an odd film. Very strange. We take it for granted now, but that's a tough pitch, <laughs> that movie. It's about two surfer dudes who travel through time to gather historical figures just so they can pass a history report. That's a weird premise. It's, it's a tough sell. How did that one catch on? Yeah. And then they do a, There's a, no stars in it. Yeah. It's like, it's God. fucking weird. Then they do a sequel, and the sequel's even more daring because they abandon the premise. There's no time travel. Well, there's some time there's travel. a little, but, like but it's, it's mostly going, going to, to hell. hell. <laughs> it's about going to heaven and hell. It's so weird. Those are... Bless I, them. The, the Bill yeah, Ted movies are great. Yeah, and then, but, and yeah. then they did Face the Music, and that's like a nostalgia trip. Yeah, but, uh, it's too cheap for its own good, yeah. but the story's nice. It's, uh, it's fine. It's a it's a uh, nice little send-off. Uh, Alex Winter came back, and Alex Winter just brought it. He was good. Yeah. I was a little worried that, like, oh, he hasn't acted in a while. Has he? he was great. Yeah, he's, 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 he was a delight. Uh, and you can tell yeah, that Keanu, Keanu was enjoying back being like, take, take, Keanu was cheating as a vacation. I just get to chill out and have fun. He, he, Thank he, God. He, he showed up, and he was there to it, but... I mean, it, it just really highlights. Oh wait, Keanu Reeves is not that great an actor. He's <laughs> got like limited range. Get, you can do, do Ted again, yeah. Then why aren't you doing it? <laughs> like, be excellent to each other. Oh yeah, and party on, dudes. No, say it the way you used to say it. Say it the, the first way. That, that's why you wrote it. That no, way. it's fine. Uh, but yeah, anyway. Stephen Herrick, who made Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, is capable of doing something kind of quirky and weird. And he yeah. and I feel like he was holding himself back. Yeah. And and it feels like a Disney production as a result. It feels really edgeless. There's yeah. not a lot of sex or violence. The no. swashbuckling is acceptable, but hey, it's, it's not better exciting. Than a lot of stuff. It's better than a lot of stuff we get now. Uh, Action-wise, everything's chopped to hell. It's hard to follow. And and it made me realize that there's so... I've seen so many action films, and I never feel excitement when I'm watching Mm. these movies. Somebody must somewhere. I mean, but, you know, there's so many fight scenes that are just, okay, cut this out. We don't need action in action movies, because they're never going to... Unless you're going to do something really extraordinary. Mm -hmm. Unless you're going to bring me, you know, Mission Impossible Fallout, or Mad Max Fury Road, or do mm-hmm. something incredibly extraordinary with the action. I don't care. A lot it, of and I'm bored action... because the movie just stops. There's a lot of movement, and mm-hmm. then it kind of picks up afterwards. A lot of my favorite action movies, the ones that really feel impactful, are the ones that actually don't have a lot of action. Mm-hmm. But when they do, it feels like, oh shit, what just fucking happened? Like um, a good example of this is a movie that um, is is actually mm, it's hard to recommend in some ways, but uh, Rob Roy with Liam Neeson. Mm, uh, where there's like two sword fights in that there's movie. like there's yeah. one chase but it's actually done to like kind of dour music so it's more moody than it is exciting oh, right, and, and he gets away by hiding inside a cow carcass well, it's like really gross there's this bit where Liam Neeson is like uh, they've got like he's like been arrested and he's got like a noose around his neck to prevent him from uh, uh, you know getting away. And when they're jumping and they're riding over a bridge, he jumps off the horse over the bridge and is hanging himself in order to uh. escape. And the only thing is they need him alive, so they have to cut the rope and he just swims away. And I'm like, Jesus fucking Christ, <laughs> holy shit! And then that movie ends, and I'm dead serious, one hundred percent. Again, there's like two and a half action sequences in this movie. Hmm. Rob Roy, the Liam Neeson movie, ends with. The single greatest sword fight in movie history. <laughs> Number one. Not, and I'm not kidding. It's 
fucking phenomenal yeah. how well thought out that There's, thing is. It's yeah. so great. Everything fits their character. Mm. There's giant stakes. Tim Roth is evil as fuck. Like, it's such <laughs> there, a good fucking ending. Yeah, there, there's... But, like, it's only a couple things, but it feels like it really means something it, when those action sequences come uh, up. It either has to mean something, you have to do it kind of sparingly, or, mm. yeah, do something really extraordinary. Really like, um, Jackie Chan at his best. Yeah, Jackie Chan, yeah. Uh, or, or, and even Jet Li, a lot, like, a, yeah. any any Hong Kong movie of the 1970s, kinda. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, uh... I remember uh, the sword fight from that really forgettable uh, early 2000s version of The Count of Monte Cristo. Oh, yeah. Speaking of uh, Dumas. Uh, uh, Jim Caviezel and Guy Pierce. Yeah. Uh, and fighting amongst the sense of reeds or something. No, it's it, at the beginning of the movie oh. when they're first having it out because they're both drunk and they're just trashing shit. Oh, okay. Like they're not really hitting each other and it's really clumsy and that's actually really exciting because you don't know who's going to get hit. Okay. They're not just both unstoppable action badasses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That works. Uh, on the other side of that coin is Duel of the Fates. Impeccably yeah. choreographed, but who cares? Nothing's yeah. going on in that and scene. We're watching a ballet. We're not really watching a fight. Yeah. And no, it's which, not which, great. Is, which is fine. There's the, yeah. That's what well, a lot of Hong Kong movies are as well. I don't really care who wins the fight. I saw it's this, more a dance than anything. I saw this weird video on YouTube um, that was like an updated version of the fight between Darth Vader and Obi-Wan Kenobi in Star Wars A New Hope. Hmm. Which, if you'll recall, is a guy who can barely move because uh, he's disabled and in a robot suit, and an old, old, old man. And they're <laughs> fighting, and their fighting is inspired by samurai movies. Yeah. Uh, and this video decided to use like deep fake technology and like some like stunt mm. people or whatever to make the action choreography like it is in the Phantom Menace, all jumping around and wild and crazy. Mm. And I'm like, no. <laughs> that's, I, that's I, not exciting. It's, it's an exercise, I guess, if you want to like practice editing and using this tech. But it's actually a. It's not that. It's not more exciting. It's just more elaborate, and it's not the same thing. Yeah. Uh, but B, and I, I just think that that completely wild, um, superhuman version of the lightsaber duels, because like we see in like Empire and Return of the Jedi, occasionally they'll like grab something from across the room and try to hit each other with it, yeah. like with the Force. But it's sparing. Mm. We're not using it constantly. We're not trying to do it, something it, that is outside the realm of the audience's understanding. It still feels, like, special and kind of exciting. Yeah. Gravity matters, yeah. that kind of shit. And there's something about the, the lot of the sword fights and the prequels that just feels elaborate for its own sake. Mm. It feels like we're trying to show off to the audience, and it's not actually what the characters would need to do. Mm. You have a laser sword. If you touch each other with them, you win. Mm. So fighting in a more samurai mode, where samurais don't it's go single, cling clang, it's, it's a, a lot. single blow. Maybe, yeah. maybe the, there's one block. Yeah, maybe. But the the whole point is, it's like a gunfight. You're only supposed to need one stroke. Yeah, you're trying to win, which is why most of like the most badass samurai movies mm. don't have a lot of duels between just two people because that fight mm. is over in a second. The, the the best sword fight in cinema history I still hold is from Sanjiro. The ending of Sanjiro, <laughs> which they had to invent a new sword fighting move to do, by the way. It's, I'm not going to ruin it for you. It's fucking amazing, and it is kind of the whole point of what I'm talking about. It's, it's long. Yeah. There's and it's, Just watch it. Just, just watch, watch it. it. It's yeah. really fucking cool, and that whole movie is amazing. Uh, but like most of like the great action movie samurai films are about one guy finding a whole fucking army. Yeah. Because every time he hits someone with a sword, that person is fucking dead. Mm. Or at the very least, they're not getting up anytime soon. Yeah. So that's basically it. And that's kind of the same thing with a lightsaber. So but, uh, yeah. I, I feel like... The whole point um, is to end the fucking fight. I, I feel like 
uh, the Three Musketeers was in this weird sort of tipping point in action cinema because this yeah. was like the early 90s. Yeah, a lot uh, of that we, Hong Kong choreography hadn't really come to America yet. Co- uh, yeah, there wasn't yeah. a lot of Hong Kong choreography yet. It was all just sort of like fencing and rapiers. And yeah. um, But they didn't have sort of actors who had the chops to really do it. So there's a lot of uh, edits to hide the fact. A lot of it's really kind of stunt doubles. A lot of it's really kind of awkward. They're, they're really trying, but they're, they're not working with a lot in the three musketeers. Uh, But this was before sort of the unbinding of uh, special effects. So they couldn't be replaced with CGI avatars anymore. So, or yet, excuse me. And um, so it, it wasn't classical and it wasn't overstuffed yet. And it wasn't really great it felt kind of yeah. kind of drab well this is one of the reasons why i like the richard lester version mm-hmm. which is it has a lot of great sword fights in it some of the and what i like is that every single character in that movie sword fights differently mm. um most of them are trying really hard not to get hit with the sword so you're not seeing a lot of like up close fighting they're trying to keep everyone at as much of a distance as possible mm. oliver reed is constantly trying to use like his coat to distract like to like pull people away yeah. and like scarred his arm and shit. D'Artagnan is of course the young crazy one who doesn't like give mm-hmm. a care if he lives or dies. Cause he doesn't really think about consequence yet. So he's doing all the acrobatic wild shit. And like it works <laughs> and it's so much more effective than this, but I digress. Um, but yeah, rewatching the three musketeers. I got to admit, I like this version. I think it is, right. it's, it's mainstream and there's no denying that, but I actually think if you were going to like, What's like the Nate Plus Ultra, like most like mainstream, here's like affable American action movie from the 90s. Mm. This is a good example of it. This uh, is this mm-hmm. is all star. Mostly the, the, the cast is here to like promote here to be on a poster. Mm. You got Oliver Platt. So you win. You got Tim Curry. <laughs> so you win. The action is fine it's not entirely disrespectful to the source material it's not like we're trying to make it completely nuts or bizarre yeah. it's a pretty straightforward three musketeers they change a few things but it's mostly the same um uh, if it's if, it it works honestly i think this movie works fine is it an all-time classic no but i get why people really really like yeah, it and i think it's i think it's a fun watch i it, like this one fine if you're gonna go for a, a swashbuckling sword swinging epic with a really sexy cast that's actually really really good go with martin campbell's the mask of zorro from four years after I this mean, yeah that's true yeah. um agreed uh, Yes, they did cast Anthony Hopkins as a Latino character. I think he's Spanish, actually. Uh, I think it was a, I think it was a colonialist. I believe is, my, is the idea. Oh yeah, okay. Um, I guess, yeah, I guess that. Yeah. Antonio Banderas, on the other hand, yeah. is not is not Mexican. So mm-hmm. like, there's that. But like, yeah, that's. But I digress. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know the the the, and, and the Kevin, way that Kevin Zeta Jones is Welsh. The, but yeah, the, um, the, the, the casting of that movie is is controversial. And yes, 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 it is. That's mm. just true. And um, if that completely turns you off from that movie, fair. That's fine. But totally fair. But it's got amazing stunts it, in it. it. Is, Everyone's really charming. Yeah, well, and if it's you can, a, if you, a good sort of superhero yeah. origin story. It's told yeah. really well. Yeah. Again, I'm not making excuses for mm. it, but every other element of the movie mm. works. And I think that's mm. why some people really, really enjoy it a lot. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and, uh, and yeah, it... it Oh gosh! It it so many young bisexuals came of age to that movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Between that one and Desperado, yeah, and, <laughs> Antonio Banderas has a lot. Antonio, mm. 
Thanks for being you, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My God. Whew. Anyway, I digress. Um, I've heard a lot of people say, I, I'm straight but desperado. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, that is it for Critically Reclaimed this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, we will be back next week. And uh, our new poll, which will be available at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, uh, we're going with, we're going to stick with the 90s. And we're going to look at 90s dramas on Netflix. Uh, the pickings were a little slim, but we we're able to find some stuff. Uh, here's what we got here. We've got Dances with Wolves, the film that won Best Picture instead of Goodfellas. <laughs> it's, uh, Which is pretty much the only way people know it now. <laughs> Three-hour uh, post-Civil uh, War epic directed by Kevin Costner. Yeah, uh, we've got Howard's End, uh, starring Emma Thompson and Anthony Hopkins, which is about a house. Uh, <laughs> called Howard's End. Yeah, I, I I I saw this one when I when it came out, and I was a little kid, and I completely tuned it out. I don't remember almost anything about it. Uh, My Girl, uh, a pretty quintessential coming of age drama from the nineties, uh, starring Anna Klumsky, uh, which uh, uh, yeah, the bees. It was, she um, was. Uh... That's right. It has the same ending as uh, as the Wicker Man. Uh, I know how. I... I'm so sorry. I'm so mad at you right now. And then lastly, <laughs> uh, the romance uh, Love Jones, uh, which uh, is you know a very respectable movie and just doesn't get talked about a lot very often. Mm. So uh, those are all available. We will review whichever one uh, our patrons vote for. So please head on over to Patreon.com/slash/CriticallyAcclaimedNetwork uh, to vote. Uh, it only takes one dollar a month to vote. And you also get our Batman podcast, yeah. our weekly Batman podcast uh, for just $1 a month. And then we have at our $5 tier, we have, we're reviewing every single film ever nominated for Best Picture. Our $10 tier, we're reviewing every single episode of Star Trek every week. I mean, not every one every week. We're going through a weekly. <laughs> and we got commentary tracks on the higher tiers. We got uh, online hangouts, the whole, the whole shebang. Um, very special thank you to all of our patrons, without whom we would have... Might not have watched this movie. We mm. might have done something else, but uh, instead you voted for this. And uh, but thank you so much for keeping our shows going. We wouldn't exist without you. Thank you. Very big, very mm. big shout out. And um, uh, to everyone else, if you can't afford to join the Patreon, the Patreon, Patreon, if you can't afford patron, patron, Patreon. Late, I'm tired. If you can't afford to join the Patreon, we we totally get it. It's so hard right now. Uh, but uh, we, you know, there are other ways to help out. Please subscribe if you haven't already. Please leave us a review. Uh, wherever you find us, that helps us uh, find more listeners. So it's, uh, places like Apple Podcasts that there's like engagement. Mm. Weird that that's a thing, but it is. Um, that, that's the only. That's the way they've decided how to yeah. gauge the popularity of these things. And yeah, 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 give give us a thumbs up. It pushes us up the list in the yeah. algorithm. Uh, we're also on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. We have a podcast called We've Got Mail, where we read our listeners' email every single week. Well, we 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 read the email they send us. We don't like hack into their emails. But <laughs> we're, uh, we're, we're reading your emails every no, week. No, no, like um, you, people send us emails. They ask us questions. They they take us to task when they disagree with us. Uh, they ask for recommendations They ask us how things work in the industry And stuff like that uh, So if you want to write in Our email address is Letters at criticallyacclaimed.net We also have a P.O. box For those who like to send uh, snail mail And some people have also been kind And like have sent us trinkets and things And thank you very, very much mm. uh, Whitney, what is our P.O. box? Uh, Critically Acclaimed Network P.O. box 641565 Los Angeles, California 90064. And um, I guess that's it. So thank you, everybody, once again, for listening to Critically Reclaimed. Mm. We'll be back next week with stuff. And uh, until then, the podcast is over. Listen to something else for a while. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.